We are continuing, and we will be for quite some time, our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. If you're just joining us, the Gospel of Matthew is a, uh, a book that's a biographical account of the life of Jesus. And in the New Testament, there's four of these biographical accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're spending some time in Matthew. We've been tracing a theme the last several weeks, and it's this theme of authority. We go back to the ending of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus comes down from the mountain with power and authority and gives like new law. And then there's these three healings that take place that have symbolic significance and value. Jesus heals a Jewish leper, man with leprosy. He heals um, a centurion servant, a Gentile, and then he heals a woman with a sickness, a fever. And in those three healings, this symbolic significance is developed by demonstrating Jesus's power and authority over both disease and sickness affecting Jew, Gentile, male, female, clean, and unclean. Immediately after that, Jesus demonstrates his authority and power over wind and water and nature, and then finally over the demonic powers. And then those stories climax with what we talked about last week, where Jesus heals a man who's paralyzed, but in doing so, demonstrates he has authority over sin. And that serves as the pinnacle and kind of climax, the zenith of the authority theme. Like, Jesus has the authority to forgive even sin. Now, out of that then arises another question. What will this Jesus do with this authority? How will he wield that power and authority? Because there's some expectations established. There's an expectation that when God's man, the Messiah, comes with power and authority, he will vindicate, vindicate Israel amongst her enemies. He will drive out the bad guys, slay and destroy and drive out the sellouts, those who compromise, those who practice evil, and those who have been faithful will preserve. So again, the question how will this Jesus hold that authority and power? And what will he do when confronted by the enemies or those who compromise or those who sold out his people? And immediately, Matthew takes us in to answer that question. And Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Now, a couple thoughts before we dive deep in. Um, Jesus is going back and forth in, in northern Galilee, and there's different regions and territories set up. And oftentimes, as you'd enter into a new territory, in this case, the C Capernaum, there would be tax collectors, and there'd be tax booths set up. And there might be fees just for coming and going, but there would also certainly be taxes for goods that you're bringing across. So let's say you're a fisherman and you've caught fish, and you're going to bring them in and sell them, then well, this tax booth would be set up, and they would charge you for those types of things. Now, if you're at all familiar with the Bible, you're, you're probably aware of the fact that again and again, tax collectors by the general populace aren't presented in good light. Like, you don't need to be like a, a, a Bible scholar to know that historically, these people weren't looked upon with, with good intention. Um, I mean, they're, they're taxing so, so that's kind of given, but I want to dive a little deeper into this so we can understand the full weight and complexities therein. So this tax booth that's set up, probably as Jesus is entering Capernaum, um, has this guy Matthew, and he's collecting th this money for goods and services that are being exchanged. Oftentimes, we immediately hear that he's collecting taxes for Rome. And that's a little misleading because he is actually most likely collecting taxes for Herod Antipas, one of the sons of Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great and his dynasty is set up by the Romans, so it is 
associated with Rome. So these taxes are associated with Rome, but first and foremost, they're going straight to Herod Antipas. And the Herodian dynasty from Herod the Great is sort of associated with this idea that they're the king of the Jews. But if you're familiar with the stories, you know that they're, they're false kings, they're pseudo-kings, and they're tyrants, they're bad guys. So this guy named Matthew is collecting taxes for the pseudo-king, the fake king of the Jews. And that fake king has been installed by the Romans. So you have all of those associations floating around when you see this tax collector. Now, he would have been deeply despised by his people, not only for what was just mentioned, he was working with Antipas and the Romans, but he's the like, quintessential betrayer, the, the sellout, because you have to remember, we're in Israel, and Israel is the Holy Land, the Promised Land, the land promised to Israel. So it's not as if these taxes, these unlawful taxes, are just being there because of, like, a simple reason of some empire. Like, this is a threat upon a promise of God. The land was given to Israel by God. And so this guy is seen as someone who's treasonous, but he's treasonous not just to his own people, but to the land and to God himself. So the tax collector is treasonous against land, people, and God himself because he's betraying the whole theological framework of his people. Now, there's something weird that takes place. Um, oftentimes, we despise people who are, like, are, they're betrayers or compromisers or sellouts more than we do, like, the real bad guys. Let, let me explain what I mean. In a movie where there's, say, there's a, a main bad guy, but then there's this character in the movie who you've kind of grown to like, and then that character um, betrays the good guy of the story. Like, oftentimes your emotions are more stirred by the betrayal of the so-called good guy than the main bad guy in the story. Like, think about movies and stories. There's tons of them where it's like, when, like you, the, the character you'd least expect, you thought he was a good guy, you thought he'd be faithful to the end, and then there's just like this horrible thing that takes place. You can think of um, characters like in The Matrix, there's a character named Cypher who does that. In Lord of the Rings, think of like Saruman and Wormtongue, people who ought to be good but betray the good guys in those stories. Think of Scar in The Lion King. He's the, he's the uncle to that guy, right? Uncle to little Simba, right? I'm actually asking. I don't remember. I just, <laughs> that was messed up. It's like, oh, man, this betrayal is like worse. It makes it worse. And so think about how Israel felt towards this guy named Matthew. He's the ultimate, like, sellout. Now, because of this type of betrayal, there was a number of traditions and laws associated with tax collectors. Now, I don't want to do sloppy history here, because oftentimes what will happen is there'll be a mention of something that's 200 years removed and maybe 200 miles removed from the specific incident in discussion. And so some of these that I'm going to show you are from within a couple hundred years of the time that we're discussing and somewhat different regions. But generally speaking, this is the general sentiment that you get towards tax collectors in northern Galilee in first century Israel. So they may not all be like precisely mapped on upon this situation, but in seeing these, these kind of traditions and laws from the region and from Jewish thought, you're going to get a, kind of a taste for what people thought of these dudes. So... Uh, first thing for tax collectors, in some Jewish tradition, they were disqualified from being a witness. 
So you might remember that in the Old Testament, in order to establish the truth of an event, there needs to be two or three witnesses. So if a crime's committed, it can't just be one person that says, I saw something. There needed to be two or three witnesses to basically confirm that something happened. So in this case, a tax collector is not given the voice to do so. And if you get into the details of it, it's a way to sort of dehumanize him. It's like you don't count as a human. You don't count as an eyewitness for an event. Tax collectors were often expelled from the synagogue. It's like getting kicked out of church. And that might not sound like, that may sound like a really bad thing, but in the first century Jewish world, that is a really bad thing. Again, we're a hyper-individualistic culture. You get kicked out of church, you go, I never liked them anyway, I'm going to go to the church down the street. It's like, but it's like there's one synagogue in your small village. For you to get kicked out of that synagogue is being kicked out from the only community of faith available to you. There's nowhere else to go. So you're just qualified as, as giving eyewitness te- testimony, you're expelled from the synagogues. Um, they, were considerably so, they were considered so morally evil that they were unclean and rendered homes unclean. So if you go back to our discussion about the man with leprosy, he was ceremonially and ritually unclean. Similarly, they said because of the the dealings of tax collectors, you too are unclean. And if you come into a house, you make the house unclean. You see, like, these guys aren't liked. They could not, you could not receive alms from a tax collector. So there's one tradition that says, like, even if you're hungry and you're starving and someone gives you alms money to buy food, if they're a tax collector, you refuse it. Why? Why? Better to starve than receive the mercy of a tax collector. Some of you I know wouldn't follow that. Be like, no, it ain't. I'm not even hungry. I'm going to take that dude's money. Uh, there's, there's two schools of thought from Rabbi Hillel and Shammai that said you could actually lie to a tax collector. They're like, man, they're wicked. Just go ahead. You get a pass on this. And then ultimately, all of this brought shame to your family and your community. So, if you're this guy named Matthew at the tax booth, you are the guy that's hated by everyone. Everyone hates you. Friends, family, the community, you are the ultimate sellout. You compromise with Antipas and the Romans. And you might even hate yourself at this point, right? Because it's not like these things happened haphazardly. These are decisions that you made. You went down this road. And so maybe it started off just a ways to make some money, but slowly you got in and now you can't get out. And everyone hates you and you might even hate yourself because of the like, morally despicable man that you've become. So when you think of this person, you really have to think of like the villain, the betrayer in the movie. Nobody wants you. Everyone hates you. Except for maybe one there may be one who still might accept Matthew. There may be one who still might actually love this man. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Now you have to understand what Jesus is doing, and you have to understand that Jesus knows exactly what he is doing. This would be a direct threat to his reputation. Jesus extending the hand in fellowship to a tax collector, that would ruin his reputation. Remember all the stuff we just said, clean and unclean. He makes a house unclean. They're the betrayers, the compromisers. 
and Jesus is going to invite him into being a disciple? Nevertheless, Jesus continues, no, follow me. Now put yourself in Matthew's shoes because it's actually quite complicated. Matthew has, has kind of put himself in a corner because a tax collector was, a, was from a paycheck standpoint a decent job. So he has kind of like job security. He's financially well off, maybe wealthy. Um, if he were to leave this position, he couldn't go back. So if you left your tax collector post, it's not like Herod and the Romans take you back. That's not the way the bad guys work. So if he goes and follows Jesus, he's leaving his job, and he's not going to be able to get it back. Now put that into context. When some of the other disciples leave Jesus, say the fishermen, if this Jesus turns out to be just kind of a normal guy or even maybe a false teacher, they all get to go back to fish, right? They don't lose their jobs as fishermen if things don't work out. For Matthew, the tax collector, there's no going back. And on top of that, you could say, well, maybe he needs to find some other work. Really, who wants to hire the tax collector? Who wants to hire the tax collector who was so stupid and idiotic he followed that crazy guy, Jesus? So for Matthew, he's leaving behind his present and his future, his safety, his security, his paycheck. There's no going back. There's a heavy, heavy weight to this. And Jesus warns us all, right? You better count the cost. If you're going to follow me, count the cost. Birds have nests, foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Do you know what following me will look like? And in that world and in that context, Jesus gives him the hand of fellowship and he says, follow me. And what does Matthew do? And he rose and followed him. And between those two sentences, the shortest of sentences, follow me, and he rose and followed him. In that small space, a world changes. And in that world changing, the world changes. Jesus takes the tax collector and brings him into the fold. What's even crazier than that is what happens next. And Jesus reclined at a table in the house. Now, one of the other gospel accounts tell us that this is actually Matthew's house. So he goes to eat with him. And as Jesus reclined at a table in Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So Jesus is reclining now, not just with one tax collector, but with the tax collectors and sinners. And the fact that he's reclining communicates this is an, an intimate meal. This is a, a deep fellowship. Um, oftentimes you might hear that in, in the ancient world and in ancient Israel, they didn't have chairs, so everyone reclined at tables. You probably heard something like that, maybe some of you. Um, they had chairs back in the day. It wasn't like, we, we're, so, we're so arrogant. We think like we're so, well, you know, humans didn't invent chairs until like 500 years ago. It's like, no, they had chairs, and they ate in chairs. However, they also ate in a more intimate fashion around a table, and they would recline. And so when you recline at a table to eat, this is more of a, a longer meal, a banquet-style meal. It's more of intimate. It's clearly communicating deep fellowship. So, when the one with all authority comes down, 
when the Messiah comes, when the one with authority and power over sickness, paralysis, wind and wave, and the demonic comes down, and he runs into the compromiser, the sellout, the betrayer, what does the one with authority do? He shares a meal with him. He eats with him. And you have to understand the power of that, right? He shares a meal with the tax collector and his friends. And the outcome is predictable. Verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why is he doing that? Remember, we knew what would happen to Jesus' reputation. He knew it was on the line, but he does it anyway. And there's something, I don't know the motivations of why they ask the, the disciples, but there's something slimy to that. Like, you probably experienced something like that, where um, there's, a, there's a problem, a said problem that exists here, and there's people that don't like the problem, but rather than confront the problem, they go around it and talk to someone else about it, to, like to the disciples. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why don't you take your so-called problem to the person and tell them and ask them? Ask Jesus the question. But there's sort of this like sliminess to it, like this kind of gossip and slanderous motivation behind it. They're trying to like kind of tar the reputation of Jesus, sneering at him type of thing. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Jesus here quotes Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, in verse 13, when he says, I desire mercy. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So what he's saying is, I don't want just some external act of kind of fake obedience. I want there to be a change in the condition of the heart. This is more clear and pronounced when you look at the Hebrew of the verse that Jesus is quoting. So we're reading the Gospel of Matthew, and it's written in Greek. But even though it's written in Greek, Jesus is quoting Hosea, the Old Testament, which is written in Hebrew. And in Hebrew you read, I desire chesed and not sacrifice. And chesed is a very unique Hebrew word. It's almost impossible to translate into English. Sometimes it's translated mercy. Uh, some of you might have Bible translations where it, it has the phrase steadfast love. You familiar with that? Like the Lord and his steadfast love. It's like, it's very difficult to, to translate. Like, who uses that in normal language? You know? K kiss your wife goodnight. I steadfast love you tonight. <laughs> My love is so steadfast for you. And that'll start a fight, like, immediately. <laughs> it's like, what do you mean it's steadfast? That sounds like you're having to endure loving me. <laughs> well, you know, my love is like the Lord. His love endures forever. It's like, what the, you know, what's going on? So, it's, it's a very difficult word, chesed. And the closest thing that I could think to, to, to make it make sense is a picture. Um, some theologians say it should be translated covenanted love or covenantal love. It's like, that still doesn't help, but it, gives us, it points us to an image. So on a wedding day, um, you, you, you love the person and you're pledging vows to them. And you're saying, I love you, like the condition of my heart says I love you, but I am also pledging to continue loving you and being faithful to you. And so it's like this 
this love that's not just rooted in a one-time act, but it'll be steadfast. It'll continue. And so what Jesus is getting at here is that it's not just the external action that matters, but it's the condition of the heart. And the reason why this is so important to understand is oftentimes people can pit the heart versus the external action. So Jesus doesn't care about external actions. He only cares about the heart. And that's like misses the point entirely. Jesus' beef is that you can't just do the external action, the kind of religious observance to X, Y, Z, and, and not have your heart right. But he's not saying, just get your heart right, and I don't care about those other things. That'd be like on your wedding day, pledging that faithfulness, because, you know, no, I pledge the steadfast love, and then you're not steadfastfully loving type of thing. So you, you don't pit those against each other. Jesus is saying, from the heart, you have this chesed, and that is what then in turn empowers external action. And he's saying that to the Pharisees, and now you can see how it makes sense, right? Because like they got all the, the external action right, but clearly something's wrong internally. Like something's off. And then Jesus says, you know, those who are well, they don't need a physician, they don't need a doctor, but those who are sick. You can have so much pride that you don't even recognize, like, the sickness in your life, how sin's in your life. And Jesus is saying, I'm the good physician, I'm the good doctor, I've come to heal that. This is a powerful metaphor, um, because yes, uh, sin is absolutely transgression, law-breaking, rebelling against God's good rule. It, it, it's all of those things. But sin is also, in the metaphor, similar to like a, a sickness or something that, that comes upon you that needs healing. So yes, it means rebellion, and yes, there's disobedience. But some of you know that sin can have such a power over your life that even if you want to stop doing certain things, you find yourself like incapable to do this. That's how the power of addiction works. And like, it, it, it's a snare that traps you, and you go deeper and deeper and deeper, and then you're so deep into a certain s sin, it's like almost nearly impossible to get out. And Jesus is saying, yeah, no, I got that angle of it too. I'm, I'm, I'm the healer. I'm the physician. I can forgive and heal. And this is something that the religious elite, elite of his day were completely missing. They were blind to their own sickness in their heart. And he confronts him on it. Now, what I want to do is come back around to this event of Jesus calling Matthew, but I want to come back around to it from a different biographical account. Remember, there's four biographical accounts in the New Testament, in our Bible, of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke has this same story in it, but he tells it just a little differently, a couple different detail changes that can be incredibly important. A couple different nuances that bring some stuff to the surface. So let me read to you Luke's account, and it's going to almost be word for word the same, except one or two changes. Luke chapter 5. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. So what's different? You had your hand up. No one else who... Name change. Levi, 
Now, there's all kinds of speculation on what's going on here. Like, why in Luke is he Levi, and then in our gospel account, he's Matthew? Well, for one thing, it, it could be a number of reasons. Tons, people had tons of names back in the day. Like, he could be named Matthew Levi, Levi Matthew. That's a possibility. The other possibility is sometimes people would have um, an original name and then a Christian name, like a conversion name. In the Bible, you have Saul and Paul, and there's other things like that. Cephas, Peter, there's, there's all kinds of examples. So maybe he was Levi, became a Christian, and then uh, everyone knew him as Matthew. All right. So in one, in one sense, no big deal. Everyone's got tons of names. However, there might be something more going on here. Levi is an interesting name because it's the name that is found in the book of Genesis of the third son of Jacob. Now, Jacob is sort of the patriarch over Israel. His name, his name is changed to Israel. And his sons form the 12 tribes of Israel in biblical history. One of those sons is named Levi, and he becomes the father of the tribe of the Levites. And the Levites have a specific function in the Old Testament, right? The Levites are the priest. Okay, so... It's possible he's just a normal Jewish guy and they like the name Levi and they named him Levi. Or probably likely he's from the tribe of Levi and that pride in his heritage is what causes his parents to name him Levi. It's certainly possible that someone from the tribe of Judah is like, you know, we're from the tribe of Judah, but I always wish we were in a different tribe, so I'm going to name you Levi. Like, it's possible. But most likely, this person is from the tribe of Levi, which is fascinating because, again, what do the Levites do? They're the priests. And what do priests do? Priests take the sacrifices and gifts and worship of the people and offer them up to God. Now, what is this Levi doing? He's taking the money of the people and offering them up to Antipas, to the Romans. So it's like this inverted vocation. It's, it's the opposite of his true vocation. And it would have made it all the worse for him. He's a tax collector, and you were called to be a priest? You were part of the priestly line? You can picture what his family would say in the letdown. Now, okay, let's step one. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, he's called Matthew. And Matthew's name means gift of God. So it's quite possible that before his conversion, he was Levi. And everyone knew him as that. And this is why Luke and in Mark, they call this guy Levi. They don't say Matthew. But in the Gospel of Matthew, he's called Matthew. And it may be because this Matthew Levi originally would have been known as Levi, but in the Christian community after the resurrection of Jesus, everyone knew him as Matthew, his post-Christian name. And even though Mark and Luke included the name Levi, this Matthew Levi wanted to make it crystal clear in his telling of the life of Jesus exactly who he was and exactly what Jesus did for him and exactly how Jesus changed him. Because early church tradition holds that the gospel of Matthew is written by Matthew, the tax collector. 
So it might be the case that one who was called to be a Levite, someone who took the sacrifices and the people and offered them up to God, became a betrayer, a Judas, if you will, and took the money of the people and offered them up to Caesar, to Rome, and Antipas. But one day he was confronted on the road by the man with authority. And the man with authority said, follow me. And that was a gift of God the grace of God in this Matthew's life. And the early church would know him as Matthew, not Levi. And when he would write his biography, he wanted to make it crystal clear exactly who he was and exactly what Jesus had done for him. It was very powerful. We can't be certain on this stuff, but there's there's something going on here. Now, there's something else that Luke does. After Jesus says, follow me, In verse 28, Luke says, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, this gets to what we touched earlier, right? Matthew, Levi, isn't just like, you know, I could come back to these fishing nets. No, if he leaves this job behind, what is he leaving? Everything. Job security, safety, security, his future job. And by the way, if you, you're a man that's disgraced your family and community, who knows what, what community strength is around you? Will there be people to care for you in your old age? When you can't work the job anymore, will there be family in your life? Or have they all disowned you? So when it says that Matthew Levi leaves everything, he is absolutely leaving everything to follow Jesus. And in losing everything, he gains everything. Because when you lose everything for Jesus, what do you get? You get Jesus. And in getting Jesus, you get everything. It's not as if that transaction is a net loss. It's not as if, well, I lost this, 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 and I got some Jesus, so now I'm negative two only, or I'm positive two. When you leave everything for Jesus, you gain everything. All I once thought gain I now count as rubbish and loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. I leave it all behind. And he gets everything. And he's brought into a family and accepted and loved and valued. And the man with authority and power goes to his house, reclines, and shares a meal with him. And this is the beauty of the gospel. Is it brings you in and you become a part of something, and you're forgiven, and whatever lies in your past is no longer the center of who you are. Whatever things that are in your past, things done to you, things that you've done, that is not the center of your being. The center of who you are is what Christ says, what the gospel does. And then the beauty of that is that it's not just a, like a past event where you leave everything behind and now you're forgiven, but there's also this this future component because Jesus says, follow me. Your life has purpose and meaning and value and you're called in to join the mission of God. What does Matthew do? He doesn't say, thanks for the forgiveness later. He follows Jesus. And the command to follow me, grammatically, it's this, it's like this, 
present active imperative, and it, it kind of it, it could kind of get geeky, but even without that stuff, just the, the phrase of Jesus saying, follow me, there's an ongoing component of that that you feel, right? It's not just follow me today, and then we're good. You're forgiven. When you become a Christian, you're committing to the ongoing following of Jesus. And so the gospel comes in, and it changes who you are. You're forgiven of the past. But then it also, just as it shaped your past, it shapes your future because Jesus brings you into his mission where you're given vocation and meaning and purpose to partner with God. Now that looks differently for every single person. But what I'd like to do briefly is just explore what that looks like for you. Now in this room, there are many people from different walks of life. Some of you are business owners, some of you are students, some of you are teachers, some of you are retired, some of you are looking to be retired, some of you are looking for work, some of you are stay-at-home moms, like all kinds of different walks of life in this room. The question for you, though, is what does following Jesus in your particular specific context looks like right now for your life? If you are a follower of Jesus, you've been forgiven and brought in. And now you're called to follow him. For Matthew, that meant something. What does that look like for you right now? And the reason why I want us to wrestle with this is because oftentimes we become a Christian. Um, and oftentimes at first there's like this, this kind of like super passionate uh, excitement about following the Lord. And then kind of life happens and there's a slow drain, and then you're less passionate about following Jesus. And I'm not saying it's like you're not a Christian or anything like that. What I am saying, though, is that there's times in life where our passion cools. And you exist on earth right now as a follower and a disciple of Jesus. And so what does following him look like for you at this point of your life? So if you're the business owner, what does following Jesus look like as you run your business? If you're, if, if you're at home raising children, what does it look like to raise your children right now? How does following Jesus impact how you raise your children? If you're a teacher, you're an engineer, you're a student, what does it look like in your particular moment? And you can ask yourself, have I sort of cooled? Am I not waking up saying, how can I follow you today, Jesus? What does this look like? I want to do this. It's a very important question because it's very easy to just kind of get off track. So what what does that look like? It's going to be different for every single person. For Matthew, he was at a table with a pen. He would collect taxes and tally them and give receipts. Matthew would leave behind the tax table, but he'd take his pen with him, and he'd write the greatest story ever told. And you go back 2,000 years between those two short sentences, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Do you think Matthew had any clue that 2,000 years from that date, people would be gathered and reading his book and going over it line by line. 
So what do you do? You just say, Lord, use me. In small ways or large ways, it doesn't matter. You're the treasure. You're the game. As we wrestle with that question, we're going to transition to communion. To, to the table, if you will. Because the table of Jesus, the meal of Jesus, is something that makes tax collectors disciples. There's a beauty to that, right? Like, Jesus' table turns tax collectors into disciples. The table of Jesus takes enemies and makes them friends and makes enemies to friends to family. And so 2,000 years ago, that's what Jesus did with Matthew. He ate with him and brought him in and turned an enemy into a friend and then into a family member. Subsequent to that, Jesus reclined with Matthew once again. The story of communion on the night Jesus was betrayed. It says they were eating and Jesus took bread and after blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. So Matthew's there again around another table and we're told that they were reclining around this table. It's a long, extended, intimate meal. something he did with this Jesus on the day of his conversion. But this time Jesus says, this bread is my body, take it. He takes a cup and he says, this is, this is my blood, drink of it. And now, likewise, 2,000 years later, we are all invited into that same table. We're all invited a place where enemies become friends and friends become families. A place where tax collectors are turned into disciples. A place where whatever is in your past is erased and forgiven and you are called son or daughter. And you are accepted and treasured and valued. And that changes your past and who you are and it shapes your future. So let's stand as we take communion.